Well, please turn with me to Galatians 2. No, you're good. I, I, I may need it. I don't know. How sick are you? Okay. I'm not going to die of thirst up here, that's for sure. There's several water bottles. Okay, my lid's closest. I'm just going to move it like that. Galatians 2, uh, as Mike mentioned earlier, uh, we encourage those of you uh, who are able to, to come back this evening. Uh, we're going to be talking through the, uh, during the, the teaching time, we're going to be talking through, continuing to talk through our teaching statement. As we mentioned a few months ago, we're hoping in April to affirm as a church a, a new teaching statement, not that it'll be uh, substantially different than our old teaching statement, but we're just thinking through how we articulate the things that we believe, how we communicate them to ourselves and to others, and so hopefully it'll be an encouraging time tonight as we begin to talk about one aspect of that teaching statement, the aspect dealing with humanity and our sin and our salvation. And so obviously, as we talk about that aspect of, of uh, what we believe, we're going to be getting into some, some deep things. We're going to talk about things like predestination and election. And so hopefully we'll, we'll talk about the things that we believe, what we believe Scripture teaches, what, why we're choosing to highlight the things we're choosing to highlight in the teaching statement, why those things matter. And then oh, hopefully we'll also just have some time to to ask questions and kind of talk through and, and maybe even make suggestions about how we might articulate those things more clearly. So hopefully this will be a good, another good evening talking through our teaching statement. Well, we're here in Galatians 2, and as we've been going through Galatians, remember the, the first section of Galatians talks about the source of the gospel, the source of the true gospel message. And Paul, as he's talking about the source of the true gospel message in chapters 1 and 2, has done a lot of autobiographical uh, discussion. He's talked about who he is and where he came from and those sorts of things in order to, to show that the source of this gospel was God himself. And now, as we come to the end of chapter 2, Paul is relating this confrontation that he had with Peter. And as he relates that confrontation that he had with Peter, he's telling us the the things that he told Peter. And we're transitioning from the the source of the gospel to the content of the true gospel. What is this, this true gospel all about? What are the essential things that we need to know, to understand, to believe about the gospel and that brought us into 15 and 16 last couple weeks. And then this morning, we're going to be looking at the end of chapter 2 as we look at verses 17 through 21. Okay, So I'm going to read, I'm going to begin in verse 15, read verses 15 and 16, but then read verses 17 through 21 as well as we talk about in Christ alone, us in him. And so if you're able to, if you please stand with me in honor of God. Let's read his word. Paul writes, We ourselves are Jews by birth, and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ 
And so we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law no one will be justified. In verse 17, But if, in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. You may be seated. And Father, please, by your grace this morning, allow us to learn what you would have us to know about our union with your Son, Jesus, and to live in the light of that. We pray this in his name. Amen. Well, uh, sermon outlines are, are difficult. It's hard to outline a, a passage of Scripture and then to, to kind of think through how to outline it as, as you present it, as I'm, I'm sure uh, you could probably guess. In fact, even as I was driving here this morning, I was thinking, boy, if I just had one more day, I think I would change a couple of things about the outline. And I, I got here this morning, and I, I looked at Mike, and I thought, well, should I? No, no, let's just, uh, we'll keep with the outline that we have. Uh, but there, outline, outlining is difficult, right? Outlining is, is hard. When I was in seminary, there were several books that we read on, on how to preach, and uh, one of the books talked about outlining, and, and it suggested this, and, and we talked about this in some of my seminary classes. It suggested, in, instead of having your outline be statements of, of facts, make each point of your outline, each main point, an application point. So, for example, instead of saying, uh, a person needs to believe in Jesus Christ alone to be saved, you'd say, Believe in Jesus Christ. Okay, so there's some sort of, with every point, there's some sort of application. So the person who's listening says, okay, I know what to do with that information. And, and certainly that there's, there's some useful advice there. I mean, I'm, I'm sure uh, sometimes, hopefully not too many times, but hopefully uh, very few times, some of you have kind of sat through a sermon here at Bethany and listened to me and then walked out and said, okay, I've got, I've got some facts on this piece of paper, but I'm not quite sure what to do with that. We, we certainly don't want that, okay? But as I thought about it, there's, there's a problem with that type of outlining. The problem is that's, that's not exactly how, how Scripture is written. In other words, if, if you are preaching on a passage of Scripture, and as you outline it, every main point of that outline is, is some sort of instruction, do this and, and do this and don't do that, you have kind of a a misunderstanding about what the text actually says, because here's kind of the interesting thing. In Scripture, you find two things. You find in Scripture a lot of, a lot of just statements of fact about who God is and about what he's done for you and for me. We, we call these indicatives, statements of facts. You find lots of those in Scripture, and you also find instructions 
imperatives. Do this. Therefore, do this. Don't do this. So you find in Scripture both indicatives and just statements of facts about what God has done, and you also find imperatives, commands. But here's, here's the interesting thing. There are far, far more statements of facts about what God has done than there are imperatives, commands about what you and I need to do. Isn't that interesting? In fact, in the book of Romans, you take the first 11 chapters of the book of Romans, you open your ESV Bible this afternoon, you count out each verse, and I think there's like 315 verses in those first 11 chapters. And if you were to circle every instruction, every command in those verses, you would only find direct commands, I believe, in like eight of those or seven of those verses. So 308 verses, there are no commands at all in those first 11 chapters. All it is, is this is who you are. This is what God has done. This is what, who you are in Christ Jesus. And then after 11 chapters of telling us indicatives, statements of facts about what God has done, then and only then does Paul get into the imperatives. Therefore, therefore, you do this. This is what you need to do. Now, what does that tell me? It tells me that God believes that it is important for, the, for me to know things before I begin to do things. And what I want to suggest to you this morning is that one of the most important indicatives, one of the most important statements of fact in Scripture about what God has done is this. You and I are united with Christ Jesus. You and I are united in Christ. We're united with Christ. We are in him and he is in us. That statement of fact about what God has accomplished is one of the most important pieces of knowledge you can possess. John Murray writes this. He says, Union with Christ is the central truth of the whole doctrine of salvation. It's not simply a phrase of the application of redemption. This, this idea that we're united with Christ underlies every aspect of of our redemption. In fact, if you, if you think about that idea of being united in Christ, you think about the phrase in him or in Christ or Christ in us, and you read through the New Testament, you're going to be shocked how often that phrase is used to describe us. Paul never uses the term Christian to describe us, but he uses the idea of us being in Christ many, many times. 2 Corinthians 5.17, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Galatians 3.28, there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's no male and female, for you're all one in Christ Jesus. Ephesians 1.4, he chose us in him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world. Ephesians 2.10, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. Colossians 1.27, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. 
Romans 8.10, if Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. 2 Corinthians 13.15, examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. Test yourselves, or you do not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you. Here's the main thing I want us to see together this morning. The main thing that I want you to to grasp with me as we look at the conclusion of chapter 2, Lord willing, we'll get through this, we'll see how my voice does. (laughs) The main thing that I want you to grasp is this. The knowledge that I am in Christ is one of the most important truths to which I must cling to grow in Christ. Knowing that I am in Christ is one of the most important truths to which I must cling in order to grow in Christ. And so what we're going to do together is we're going to look at this passage and we're going to see four four truths that help us understand the benefit of knowing that we are in Christ. And here's the first one. Number one, in Christ, I consider my draw to lawlessness as sin. In Christ, I consider my, my draw to lawlessness as sin. In other words, knowing that I am in Christ is going to help me flee lawlessness. Listen to what Paul writes here. He says, but if, remember he's just talked in verses 15 and 16 about being justified by faith in Christ alone and not by works of law. Then he says, but if, In our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners. Is Christ then a servant of sin? And then he says, certainly not. Now, I want you to follow Paul's logic with me here, okay? He says, in our endeavor to be justified in Christ. That's that's the first thing he says. And what what does he mean? He says, "If, if it's true, what I've just told you, Peter, in verses 15 and 16, if it's true that we are justified in Christ and not by works of the law. Remember he says uh, works of the law three times. He says faith in Christ three times. He talks about justification or righteousness three times. And, he, and, he, and his, his point is so clear. The beginning of the verse and the, or the beginning of the sentence, end of the sentence, we're not justified by works of the law. At the very center of that sentence in verses 15 and 16, what does he say? We're justified by, by faith in Christ. So he says, okay, We've endeavored, our, our, our attempt to find righteousness has not been in ourselves, but our, our, our desire, our aim is to find righteousness, justification in Christ. That's, that's the first part of what Paul says here, right? He says, if that's true, that's what we've done, and in that, what happened? Here's the second part of his logic. We were found to be sinners. Now, now what does that mean? It means that if it's true that I'm not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ alone, and I've sought that justification in Christ alone and not in my works, what does it mean that I've confessed about myself? It means, Paul says, Peter, to Peter, you and I have admitted we can't do this. We're sinners. The reason that we're trying to find our justification in Christ and not ourselves, is because we're too sinful. We're not going to have the ability 
to be obedient to the law. Okay, so you see his, his logic? We endeavor to be justified in, in Christ, in him alone. As we did that, what happened? We confessed ourselves to be sinners, and that, that became evident. And then what's the third part of his logic? He says, if it's true that I sought justification in Christ through faith, and I, conf- I, I confessed myself to be a sinner. I was, I was proven to be a sinner. What's the third part of his logic? Does that mean that Christ is a servant of sin? Here's what the Judaizers would have said. Here's what the people that, that Paul is, is trying to help the Galatian people resist. This is what they would have said. Look, Paul and those who had listened to Paul. Paul's giving up. Paul is saying, I need Jesus Christ to be justified and him alone, and so I'm, gonna, I, I'm, I'm not relying upon following the law anymore. But what Paul is saying is that Jesus Christ is someone who enables us to sin. Jesus Christ, with Paul's understanding, just becomes an enabler of sin. You're, you're just using Jesus as an excuse to not try to follow the law. You're giving up. You're not going to try to pursue righteousness anymore. And now you just have this excuse to sin, this excuse to live a sinful, lawless life. And you're making Jesus Christ a servant of sin, an enabler of sin. Now, before you dismiss this too quickly, I think that objection rings true because so many of us, whether we've, whether we've said it explicitly or not, so many of us think that way. I know that I shouldn't sin, but if I do, I know that Jesus Christ has paid for it. I know I, I shouldn't watch this movie, but you know what? Jesus Christ, this is going to cause me to lose my salvation. In Jesus Christ, I'm saved, and so I, 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 I'm okay. I, I know that I need to be more generous with my resources, but you know what? Uh, Christ has covered all us on the cross. It's, it's okay. This attitude that the Judaizers accuse Paul of promoting is not one that you and I are completely ignorant of. But Paul says this. Paul says, is Christ a servant of sin? And and what does he say about that idea? He says, certainly not. That whole idea that Christ would be a servant of sin is, is repugnant. It's abhorrent. He'll say this in Romans 6. He says, should we continue in sin that grace may abound by no means? How can we who died to sin still live in it? In other words, and we'll, we'll, we'll develop this as we continue to go through chapter 2, Paul's saying this, because I am in Christ, because I've been united with Christ through faith, I am no longer one who's going to pursue lawlessness. And by lawlessness, what do we mean? We mean a living living as though I don't have an obligation to be in obedience to God's moral law, to, to, to fall underneath the, the authority of God's word. Paul's saying, the idea that I would have the freedom or, or, or would be able to pursue lawlessness, living as though I don't 
need to be in a, under authority of God's word, that idea is, is contrary to my understanding of being united with Christ. You see, to be united with Christ doesn't mean to have freedom to pursue anything that I want apart from being underneath the authority of God and his word. Being in Christ means that I now have the ability to be obedient to God and his word. There's a, a book that's coming out next month, I think. Uh, I read about it uh, just this last week. And uh, the, the book is not one that I would recommend at all. It's, it's a very sad book. And uh, it's entitled Shameless. Shameless, a sexual reformation is, is the subtitle. And I can't imagine, a, and again, I haven't read the book, of course, but just based upon what the author said, what the publisher says, I, I can't imagine a more uh, telling example of an idea of abusing grace in this book. And, and here's what, uh, it's, it's written by Nadia Boltz uh, Weber. She's a, a former pastor at a... Uh, kind of a progressive Lutheran church. I, I don't know if that's the right way to put it, but that's kind of what I glean. And uh, this book is designed, according to the publisher, to overhaul our harmful and antiquated ideas about sex, gender, and our bodies. And the author, in an interview, she says, she says this, I want people who read this to rethink their ideas about Sexual ethics, gender, orientation, extramarital sex, and the inherent goodness of the human body. And translation, right? What the Bible says about sexuality and about morality is, is oppressive and harmful. And in the promotion for her book, in fact, she encourages people to, to mail in uh, purity rings. So maybe you received a, a purity ring as a teenager, she says. It says uh, she says, I want you to mail those in, and I'll send you this certificate. And the certificate says, uh, so-and-so, it's a, called a, an impurity certificate. It says, so-and-so has traded in their purity ring in exchange for this certificate, and in doing so vows to live a shameless, open, and free life with love for themselves and their body and listen to this, knowing that they are already holy. In other words, she's saying, look, you should have the freedom to live lawlessly, as though you're not underneath the authority of God's moral law. And why should you have the ability to do that? Because God has dealt with your sin in Christ. But what a tragic understanding, right? You see the contradiction with what we're talking about here? Listen to what, listen to what Paul says about immorality in 1 Corinthians 6. He says, he says you, you, you've, uh, he's talking again about our, our union with, with Christ and what it means for us. He says, don't you know that your bodies are members of Christ? This is 1 Corinthians 6. Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For it is written, the two will become one flesh, but he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God you are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. 
lawlessness, lawlessness perverts the gospel by not seeing us united in holiness, but is seeing us as free to sin, right? Certainly not what we see in Scripture. What we see in Scripture is the message of grace is this. It's not a message that says, look, anything goes. It's a message that says, now you are united with Christ, and you don't have to trade one prison for another prison. You're now united with Christ, and you have the ability to be free in him, to live in obedience and love from God and toward God. And certainly, certainly the shame is not a place where those who are in Christ should dwell, but the answer to shame is not to lead a lawless life, but to find wherever we, if we've been sinned against, if we've sinned in whatever area it is, to find in Christ our freedom and our identity to be in him and not in ourselves. So in Christ, in Christ, I first consider my draw to lawlessness as sin. In other words, knowing that I'm in Christ helps me flee lawlessness because I recognize that in Christ lawlessness has no place in my life. Secondly, secondly, in Christ, I consider my draw to legalism as sin. Knowing I am in Christ helps me reject legalism. So, in Christ, what do I do? I consider my draw to lawlessness as sin And also in Christ, I consider my draw to legalism as sin. Now, now notice what I I did there. What I just did there is is not right. (laughs) I I, I, I acted like legalism is on one side and lawlessness is on the other. Actually, I did this way. Lawlessness is on one side and legalism on the other. Like, they're, they're polar opposites. But that's not the case. You have the lawless person over here. You have the legalist over here, sometimes we think. And so if I have a, 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 a lawless person, I just need to give them a little bit more law so they kind of come to the middle. Or if I have a, a legalist, I say, hey, you need to lighten up a little bit and stop following all these rules and bring them to the middle, okay? But that's, that's not the case. Both the legalist and the lawless person are separated from Christ, the legalist and the lawless one have, have both abandoned the gospel. They're, they're severed from Christ. You know, whenever, uh, sometimes in the morning, I, I like to make coffee for Whitney. And uh, I, I'm, she, she's, she has this, this very specific ratio of, of coffee to milk. And so sometimes if I'm not careful, I'm just kind of making things quickly. And I, I, I put it together and I, I look at it. I go, oh, I don't think that's quite the right consistency. And she... I'm kind of a perfectionist, if you don't know that about me as well. And so I, I kind of look at that, and I think, okay, um, I think we just need a little bit more milk. Oh, a little too much, and a little more coffee, okay? And eventually, I have to get a bigger mug because of the ratio is, <laughs> bring it to, her, you know, to the top. But sometimes we think of lawlessness and legalism like that, okay? Here's this cup, and the, the, if you want to get the balance just right between lawlessness and legalism, but, but that's, that's not the biblical way to think about it. Both lawlessness and legalism come from the, the same root. They're, they're both uh, a means of approaching God or thinking about a relationship with God apart from Jesus Christ. So look at what Paul says here. He says, he says if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. Now, now what does he mean? He means that to return to the law is to return to something that he's torn down. He says, I, I, I've, I'm no longer in trying to pursue righteousness through the law. 
And if I were to go back to the law, what would I be doing? I would be coming back and I'd be rebuilding this thing that I tore down. And what would be the result? If I rebuilt the law, all that I would have is this structure that showed that I was a sinner. It would do nothing to actually deal with the sin. Paul says, if I, if I rebuild this thing that I tore down, all that I'm doing is showing that I'm a sinner. If I come back to the law and I start trying to follow the law in order to achieve righteousness, what's going to happen? The only thing that's going to happen if I try to follow the law again is that once again I'm going to be exposed as a sinner. It's not going to deal with the actual sin. It's not going to give me the righteousness that I need. Paul says, look, if I rebuild what I tore down, I'm proving myself to be a transgressor. And then in verse, verses 19 and, and 20, we're going to see the answer being united to Christ. On Friday, I was walking by the, the kitchen in the farmhouse. I saw a, a plate of, of cinnamon rolls. I was thinking about the sermon, obviously. And uh, as, I, as I passed by the, the cinnamon rolls, uh, there's, there's this smell that came, right? You know, this, this, this beautiful, I love the smell of cinnamon, right? This, this, this wonderful, but not just like sugar cinnamon, right? You smell this, this, this wonderful sugar cinnamon as, as you go by. And, and I realized as I walked by this, this plate of cinnamon rolls in the morning, I realized this is going to be my Friday. I'm going to pass by this plate of cinnamon rolls probably 20 times today. How, how do I prevent myself from eating this entire, because I know the rest of the office isn't going to help. Um, how, do I, how do I prevent myself from eating every cinnamon roll on this, on this plate? Because these things, are, these things look amazing. Now, what if I, what if I had, had written a, a placard, a little, a little note, a little card that said, Daniel, don't eat the cinnamon rolls, and then I, I put it next to the plate. What is that? That's, that's the law. And it certainly is possible that a little note like that is going to, to help me to, to some degree, okay, in order of accomplishing that task. Some of you may have notes all over your kitchen, right? Don't do this, do this. But what is it not going to do? It's not going to change the desire, right? In fact, I didn't even know that I wanted cinnamon rolls when I woke up on Friday morning. That the presence of them revealed what was already there inside of me. So what, is a, what does a sign do? A, a sign doesn't help deal with the, the cravings. In fact, it can sometimes just cause us to, to turn them in different directions. Instead of enjoying something like a cinnamon roll, you, you refuse to enjoy any, any food that God has given for our enjoyment. Uh, or, or you, or you into overindulge. All these things, it doesn't, the little signs don't deal with the heart issue. And both legalism and lawlessness have the same root. And Paul is saying here, look, if I, if I just come and I, I come back to the law, it's not going to deal with the sin. I'm a transgressor. That brings us to the third point. The third point is this. In Christ, I consider myself dead with him. In other words, 
knowing I am in Christ, helps me flee sin. In Christ, I consider myself dead to sin. Knowing that I am in Christ helps me flee from sin. Here's what Paul writes. He says, For through the law, I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. In other words, for me to live the life that I needed to live, I first needed to die. There's an obvious sense in which I needed death in terms of judgment. I, I, needed, I needed to be united with someone in death so that I wouldn't have to pay the penalty for my sin. But there's another reason I needed to die. If I was going to live in Christ, we'll talk about that in a moment. We'll talk about that as we go into Galatians 3. If I was going to live in Christ, I first needed to die myself. Here's what Paul says in Colossians 2. In Colossians 2, Paul says this, If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive to the world, do you submit to regulations? In other words, Paul says, look, you Colossians, are, you're trying to do some things in order to, to walk the Christian life, and you're living a very legalistic life. And you need to understand that you've died. And if you've died to the world, why are you living like you're still alive in it? He says, why, this is again Colossians 2, verse 20. Why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Regulations like do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Referring to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings. These teachings, these things have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Then he goes on into chapter 3, he says this in verse 1, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for you've died... And your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. And then listen to what he says in verse 5. And so he's, he's done the indicative and the imperative thing. He said, okay, this is who you are. You're a person who's died with Christ. And then he gives the imperative. If that's true... Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. Paul says, look, if, if we're, to the Galatians, you're, you're trying to follow the law in your pursuit of godliness. And there's something you need to remember. There's some knowledge you need to have about who you are. Otherwise, you're going to live a very futile life. You need to know, and he's, he's saying, he's reminding them what he told Peter. 
you need to know that through the law, you died to the law. In other words, the message of the law revealed to you that the law would not be sufficient to save you, and it pointed you to Jesus Christ. He says, therefore, I've been crucified with Christ. We'll come to more of Galatians 2.20 in just a moment. You need to know who you are in Christ if you're going to experience the victory that God desires for you to have over sin. And here's the problem that I have and the problem that many of you have. Many of us are trying to live the Christian life by focusing on the imperatives. Here's what God has told us to do. God wants me to, to read my Bible. God wants me to, to evangelize. God wants me to, to pursue uh, purity. God wants me to do that. And so I'm going to try to, to, to uh, not lose my temper. I'm going to try to, to be kind to, to small woodland creatures. I mean, I'm going to try to do all these things. Okay? And the problem that you have, the problem that I have, the problem that so many of us have, is that we focus on these imperatives, these, these, these commands and we haven't first understood who we are, the indicatives of what God has done in us. You said, well, Daniel, is this like just some sort of like Oprah-esque, Joel Osteen-esque uh, mental gymnastics that we do? We just kind of say, I've died, I've died, I've died, and, and that helps us fight sin. No, no, no. What's happening here as we come to a passage like Galatians 2 and we read these words, I have been crucified with Christ, we're not kind of making up some sort of imaginary thing that's happened to us. As the Spirit works within us as we read his word to understand, okay, I, I realize this is the reality of what has taken place within me already. I, I'm seeing as I come to Scripture and I gain this knowledge, I'm saying, okay, this is what's happened and this is the fuel that enables me to be obedient. This is the, the basis that I have to have hope that I can flee from sin. In Christ, I consider myself dead with him and that means that I believe that I have the ability to withstand sin. My dad uh, has been receiving these, these blood transfusions, and, and due to some of the other medication that he's, he's taking, as he, as he gets these blood transfusions, his, his, blood, his blood type changes, that the chemistry of his blood changes in some pretty significant ways. Now, there's no visible outward sign that my, my dad and, and this, this donor that has given the blood, that they're, they're somehow becoming connected. You'd never see it. That's not like what our union with Christ is like. It's not, it doesn't require someone telling us what's happening for, for it to be true, or for us to be, to be aware of it in, in any sense. What's happening with us in our union with Christ is, is we're being transformed. We become united with Christ, and as we're united with Christ, we're being transformed by his presence within us, and so we're changing not just on the inside, but on the outside as well. But as we come to a passage like Galatians 2.20, we say, okay, I'm reading this, and this helps me understand the process that God is doing in my life, and it gives me the knowledge that I need to understand what's happening within me and to rely upon the right resources to continue in my walk with Christ. Many of you are trying to fight sin in your life without first coming to grips with this crucial truth. 
your hope for fighting sin in your life is not based upon you writing down enough rules and following them, them well. It's not based upon you just practicing more self-discipline. The basis of hope that you have in your life to fight against sin is the, this, this, this reality that through faith in Jesus Christ, you have been, by God, united with him. That means you've been united with him in his death, and it means you are dead to sin. And you say, well, Daniel, it certainly doesn't feel like that sometimes. And to that I say, that's why God gives us his word. So we can believe the indicatives and not our feelings. Sinclair Ferguson puts it this way. He says, in fact, we don't naturally feel or think of ourselves in this way. Paul is is grinding spectacle lenses for us according to the gospel's prescription. And we need to wear these spectacles in order to see ourselves more clearly and to recognize and benefit from our new identity in Christ. For we have been co-crucified with him. And if we have been, we have died to the old order. Here's the fourth thing I do. In, In Christ, I consider myself alive in him. In Christ, I consider myself alive in him. And knowing that I'm in Christ helps me pursue holiness, right? Galatians 2.20 is an amazing, amazing verse. Again, Sinclair Ferguson says, he says this about Galatians 2.20. He says, in the midst of Paul's argument, there's one verse that seems to stand out like a bright star in the night sky. And in the past... This verse was one of the first verses new Christians were encouraged to memorize. It served as an identity card, providing a brief summary description of the Christian life. What precedes Paul's monumental statement scarcely prepares us for it. To read Galatians 2.20 for the first time is like turning a corner in the Swiss Alps and catching one's first sight of the Matterhorn, arising as it is out of nowhere. Here's what Paul says in Galatians 2.20. 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith, the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. What's Paul saying here? Just like I needed to die, I need to live. And I need to live in a way that I couldn't live on my own. And we're going to unpack more of what's happening here in Galatians 2.20 as we get into chapter 3. But let me, just, let me just say this. Many of us begin the Christian life knowing I, I need to, to believe in Jesus to be saved. And that is absolutely true, right? But what I see here in Galatians 2.20 is that there's so much more. Every spiritual blessing becomes mine in Jesus Christ. As one person puts it, when we get Christ by faith, we get everything that is in him to pardon, to liberate, to transform our lives. All the resources that God deployed in his son, his death and his resurrection, his ascension and his heavenly reign, you and I now inherit. And if this is true, then every resource, listen to this, brothers and sisters, every resource stored up for us in Jesus Christ is now available to you and to me through faith to enable us to live for his glory. Paul says, and I I encourage each of us to memorize this verse, Paul says, look, now as I live, it's not me ultimately who's living. It's, It's Christ in me. 
And yeah, I'm, I'm walking around in the flesh. I live by, I, I'm living in the flesh, but as I live in the flesh, I'm living by faith. I'm not living by faith in myself to, to try real hard, to be super smart, to be uh, super godly. I'm living by faith in Christ to give me the resources that I need. And you say, well, how can I trust Christ to do that? Because he's the one, those two beautiful phrases, who loved me and gave himself for me. And then Paul says, with this understanding, am I nullifying the grace of God? He says this in verse 21. He says, absolutely not. Because if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no, no purpose. In other words, if it was possible to achieve righteousness through the law, Christ died for no purpose. But my pursuit of righteousness, my endeavor to be justified in Christ alone, actually doesn't nullify God's grace. It exalts it. It proclaims it because I'm saying it's only by God's grace that I can live. We're in for some exciting things in Galatians 3. Lord willing, I will have my voice back next week and we'll be able to, to really kind of dive into some things there in Galatians 3. But here's, here's, what we, here's my encouragement to you. It's not enough to focus on the imperatives of Scripture. We need to know who we are in Christ. And my encouragement would be to take Galatians 2.20 especially and, and memorize that, meditate on it. As, as, as you're tempted to sin, bring that verse to mind. Okay, I'm, I've been crucified with Christ. I don't have to, to I'm not a slave to sin. I'm, I'm in Christ. And now the life that I live in the flesh, yeah, I'm, I'm tempted, but I, I live by, by, the, by the work of, of Christ within me. I live by faith in the Son of God. And who is Jesus? Here's another indicative, another statement. He's the one... I, He's the one who loves me and the one who gives, gave himself up for me. Knowing that we're in Christ is a foundational knowledge that we need to live the Christian life. Let's pray. Father, we pray that by your grace uh, you would save us, you would continue to save us from sin. We pray that by our, our union with your son Jesus you would help us to live a, the, the life of victory uh, in your son Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen.